Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland. We take timeless biblical truth and help you to apply it in the context of your daily life. If you'd like to join us live at one of our campuses or stream one of our services online, go to peavine.org for times, locations, and more information. Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bibles while you're turning there, if you're joining us online, thank you for joining us online. Take a moment, whether you're in the room or you're watching online, send the link to somebody. You can send them to pvine.org and that'll get them there and they can watch us online as well. And so make sure you do that. And then Rossville, thank you for joining us there. I know Corbin did a great job this morning, he and his team. Thank you for joining us there at Rossville as well. Well, Matthew chapter 5, I've in a sermon series called The Difference, Letting Your Light Shine, right? The difference between us and lost and dying world. And that's important to keep in mind that that's the theme of Matthew chapter 5, right? We've got unbelievers and believers, and our lives are to be different. Our, our living is supposed to be different. And so that difference, that gap between our lives and their lives is what shines a light on the gospel. That difference is how we let our light shine. So what is that difference? And so Jesus goes through Matthew chapter 5 and gives us some very specific areas that we're to let our light shine. Now I'm going to deal with one today. I'll be honest with you. I never ever would have preached this passage unless I'd just been preaching expositorily the way I'm doing now. So I'm really excited about preaching about something about that really I just never would have done apart from just doing what I'm doing now. I'm preaching through a whole chapter in the Bible. So I, I want to preach on this today. How do you know the difference between us and the lost and dying world? Because a believer is a man of your word. That, that's woman or man. I just use man because that's the colloquialism we're used to. But a man or woman of the word. So look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Hold your place there. And if you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen in just a moment. Times are changing. Times are different. But if you step back a little bit, you can really see how times have changed. For example, I'll go back. If you're a teenager, this will mean nothing to you. Uh, but hang with me because this will be true in your life one day if you're a teenager or in college. But if you're, you know, if you're any age on you whatsoever, you know how times have changed. But let me, let me stretch you just a little bit this morning. Let me tell you how times have changed uh, for in the last 50 and 100 years. For example, here's what we know, that in 1922, a, dollar, a, a $1922 is worth over $16 today. That's 100 years ago. 50 years ago, a dollar in today would be worth almost $7 50 years ago. So our money has drastically changed. Man, this one really blew my mind. Life expectancy 100 years ago was 61 years. Life expectancy, just a short 100 years ago. 50 years ago, it was 71 years. And today, it's almost 80 years for life expectancy. Well, look at how much money we used to make. 1922, the average annual household income was $3,000 100 years ago. Household income. 1972, it was $35,000. But today in 2022, it's $61,000. Now, let me ask you this. How much do you, what, what do you think the average price of a new car was 100 years ago? Well, it ain't hay 100 years ago. No, there were cars 100 years ago, $525. 1972, uh, 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 $3,500. 
in 2022, if you can even find one, this is the price of a used Pinto today, $47,000, You know this, you've lived through, what about a new home? 1922, $6,000. 1972, $23,000. This ain't right. 2022, $375,000. The average cost of a new home. Finally, not finally, but almost. How many NFL teams were there 100 years ago? 18. How many NFL teams were there 50 years ago? 26. How many NFL teams are there today? 32. Now, this is finally. How much do you think a movie ticket was 100 years ago? Anybody want to guess? You're close. 15 cents. 50 years ago, it was $1.50. Today, it's at least $10. That's how much times have changed in the last 50 and 100 years. Now, if you're, if you're, my, if you're at least my generation, hold on. If you're, if you're like me and you, you, you're in your middle 30s, you remember some of these things. Like you remember some of these things. Can, can, I, can I tell you what turns 50 in, not, in, in 2022? Can I tell you what turns 50? Does anybody know what that phrase is from? Life cereal. Can I tell you what else turns 50. Nothing runs like a, what's that for? Right. Can I tell you what else turns 50? Nobody does it like Sarah Lee. You know, obviously what that for. You know what else turned 50 this year? HBO turned 50 years old, which was hard for me to believe. You know what else turned 50 this year? I can't get no respect was uttered for the first time 50 years ago. I don't even know what happened. You know what's turned 50 this year? Bounce dryer sheets. What did you do before dryer sheets? I don't, I'm not even old enough to know what happened before dryer sheets. And finally, we all celebrate what turns 50. Doritos. Doritos in 50 years. I mean, if you look at what cha- has changed in the last 50 and 100 years, I mean, literally, things have dramatically changed. But one of the things that's changed is what we see in our Bible today. Today, we read the Word of God, and we can look at what really has changed. Why? Because these verses are all about keeping your Word. Even in America today, it seems that everything takes a contract. I mean, if you can go back 50 and 100 years ago, you remember the time if, if you're, again, like me in your middle 30, you remember the time when things could be settled and done with a handshake. That things that require a, an attorney now took a handshake then. Why? Because people kept their word. And today it requires enormous amount of paperwork to make it happen. And hear me, that is the difference between a child of God and the world. That is the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. That listen, if you are a child of God, our word ought to mean something. That is our word to our family, our word to our neighbor, our word to our community, our word to our church, and our word to our God. 
Matthew talks about it. Matthew recorded it, but Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 5. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's Word? And it'll be on the screen if you don't have your Bibles this morning. Matthew chapter 5, look beginning at verse 31, if you will. It was also said, Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne, or by earth because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But, verse 37, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. And anything more than this is from the evil one. Thank you. You may be seated. Jesus tells us that the difference between us and the world is how we keep our word. So Christians ought to be word keepers. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. I just want to walk through this passage and I want to explain what Jesus was saying because there's some things in here that won't make sense if you don't let me do a little explanation. And then I will make four observations about the passage. Hold on with me. Verse number 31. Jesus said, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her written uh, uh, notice of divorce. Now Jesus pointed out an Old Testament passage that his listeners knew well. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy, here's what Jesus was quoting. He said, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. That was the Old Testament as the children of Israel are wandering through the wilderness. Jesus, dealing with family issues, gave this law to Moses. And he, he said, this is the way that you must handle these divorce situations in the Old Testament, right? Here's how you've got to deal with divorce. So, because the subject of a divorce was highly... <laughs> Hotly debated among the Jews at the time, some religious leaders, one named Rabbi Hillel, took this to mean, get this, that a man could divorce his wife for almost any reason. Because he goes back to this phrase, a woman who becomes displeasing to her husband, a woman who becomes displeasing or, or finds something indecent in her. So Rabbi Hillel said this, that you could divorce your wife for almost any reason. For example, can I, give you, can I give you one of the reasons that was infamous at the time? You could divorce your wife if she burned supper. Supper didn't taste right. Hey, that's indecent as far as I'm concerned. You're gone. You're out of here. And people were doing that. And by the way, can I say this? If... It was true then, it's true now. If you're looking for a reason, you'll find one, right? And so they explained that something indecent that you saw up there could refer to anything that displeased the husband. And it was a culture that viewed their wives as property and divorce was fairly easy to obtain. But there were other rabbis. One was named Rabbi Shema, who said that divorce could only be granted in the case of adultery or sexual immorality. And so he took this, uh, you know, maybe the way Jesus intended. So Jesus goes on and he's talking about these two camps. And by the way, if you 
were able to subscribe to one uh, through your church, and one was, it, well, I can divorce her for any, any, if she just pleases me at all. And by the way, women couldn't divorce anyone, but men could divorce the women. And so um, if, you know, she did, or in, in this extreme case of adultery, you're going to go with the liberal guy, right? Like, uh, well, uh, you burn supper, you're, you're out of here. And so uh, that's what they were doing. Well, Jesus comes along in verse 32, and he says, but I t- tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, cause her to commit adultery. Who marries her that's divorced has committed adultery as well. Jesus said this, that the sacred, notice this word with me, the sacred vow of marriage should not be broken and that to remarry after divorce was also committing adultery. Jesus said, hey, when you walked down the aisle, as we'd say it today, and got married, you are making a vow. Hear me, you are giving your word. And the only exception to the rule, according to God, was when one partner broke the vow by sexual immorality. So we have to examine then, if it's important enough to know, what, what, what was the word sexual immorality? Well, the word in the Greek there is the word pornea. It's where we get our word pornography from. It has a broad range of definitions. It could mean at least one of four things, if not multiple. It could mean committing adultery, one offense, like you did it one time, and that was pornea. Or it could also mean unfaithfulness during the engagement period. If you remember that uh, marriage in the Old Testament was, was a legal binding contract, it was a vow that you gave in engagement. And during the engagement period, it took a divorce to break the engagement period. It took a writing of divorce. And so if you were unfaithful during the engagement period, that was pornea. Or it could be an illegitimate or incestuous marriage. I read this in a commentary. You say, why, do you, why in the world incestuous? Because they didn't have record keeping like we have today. And so Sometimes they would uh, get engaged and find out they were first cousins because they lived in different cities and be like, oh, we can't do that. And so it would cause a writing of divorce. And, And then this, number four, a continued and unrepented faithfulness. Continued and unrepented faithfulness over sexual sin that might be in your in your marriage. Later on in Matthew, Jesus explains Why does it take something so drastic to break that wedding vow? He he said it here, Matthew chapter 19. He said this, haven't you read? He replied that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. Can y'all say that with me? Male and? Say it one more time just so you got it. Does everybody know what that means? You know what that means in the Hebrew? Male and female. That's free. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, I end every marriage ceremony this way, let no man separate. What God has joined together let no man separate what God has joined together. Let no man separate. So Jesus was making the case that a Christ follower kept his marriage vow, his marriage word, except in the most extreme situation of 
pornea, which would be sexual immorality, unrepentant sexual immorality in most of the time. And so here's what he said. You vowed to stay together when you were married. God sealed that union. You say, well, I wasn't married in church. I don't care where you were married. When you made that vow, it was a heavenly seal. And here's what Jesus said. Absolutely nothing should separate it, except in the most extreme case of pornea. Jesus was making the case your family word should mean something. Husbands, your wife needs the security of knowing that you vowed to love her until the day you die, no matter what comes. And you'll do exactly that. Ladies, your husband needs the security of knowing that you vowed to love him until the day you die, no matter what comes. And you'll do exactly that. Jesus said in your family that you need to be a man or a woman of your word. He doesn't stop with family. He goes on to verse 33. He said, you've heard it said that it was to our ancestors, you must not break an oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. Back in these times, vows were assumed. Vows were a part of life. They were even encouraged. But... Once they were made, they were not to be broken under any circumstance. You know, the Old Testament says don't, don't make one if you're going to break it. The Bible teaches us that vows are serious business. But the problem was that in Jesus' time, uh, the traditional biblical teaching had come under massive abuse. So some uh, along the line, some rabbis begin to teach that an oath was not binding unless it included the name of God or implied the name of God. So, for example... You swore by someone else's life or the life of a king or by some object but did not mention or allude to the name of God, then you were not bound. The Mishnah or devotes one whole section called Shaboeth or Os in the Hebrew to an elaborate discussion of when oaths are binding and when they are not. And so the swearing of an oath had degenerated into a system of rules as to when you could lie and when you could not. So there was an ongoing epidemic of frivolous swearing and oaths that were continually mingled with everyday speech so they would say things like this by your life or i love this one by my beard was a popular one or may i never see the comfort of israel if there was this inevitable trivialization of everyday language and integrity and it became common practice to convince another that you were telling the truth while you were lying by bringing some person or object into reverence, but the deception was subtle. So I said all that to say this. Here's what they would do. One rabbi taught that if you swore by Jerusalem, by Jerusalem, I swear by Jerusalem, then you were not bound. But if you swore toward Jerusalem, it was binding, evidently because that in some way implied the divine nature of God. So if I said, I swear by Jerusalem, then I was not bound to tell the truth. But if I said, I'm swearing towards Jerusalem, then I was bound. So it's the equivalent of, do you remember doing this in grammar school? It's the, it was the equivalent of crossing your fingers behind your back. You ever done that in grammar school? It's literally what it was. It was the equivalent of crossing your fingers behind your back. And Jesus was tired of it because uh, followers of God were not keeping their word. So Jesus said in verses 34, 35, and 36, 
that a, he wanted a Christ follower to remove the common practice of swearing by objects in order to validate your vow. So he said this, don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, don't swear by Jerusalem, don't swear by your head. Why? Because none of those things are under your power and you have no authority over them whatsoever, so it's meaningless, all right? So now that's how we... That's how we make contracts, Jesus. How are we supposed to make contracts? Well, here's what Jesus said in verse 37. I love this verse. I actually quote this verse from time to time. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 37, but let your yes mean what? Say it with me. Yes. And let your no mean what? No. Anything more than this is from the evil one. So here's what Jesus was trying to say. He said, it used to be like this. People would lie, they would stretch the truth, they would exaggerate, and they would swear by heaven and earth and all that. Jesus said, stop all that. That a, a, a believer is known by this. The difference between us and an unbeliever, the difference between a saved person and a lost person is this. Our yes means something. Our no means something. Here's what Jesus was saying in verse 37. Listen to this statement. That your word should be so good that you don't have to beg people to believe you. Your word should be so, should be so good you don't have to beg people to believe you. So having said all that, let me spend the next seven or eight minutes telling you four statements. Number one is this. Here's what Jesus was saying. Do more than the culture does. Do more than the culture does. Jesus said this. Matter of fact, he used this phrase multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount. He said it was also said, or if you have heard it said, it was a common theme on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus was saying. That these are the two statements. He, he, he was saying this. Here, here's what the culture says is acceptable. Jesus said, here, here's what they say. The world says this is acceptable. But a disciple should adhere to a higher standard. This is what the world says. But a disciple should adhere to a higher, higher standard. Hey, listen to me this morning. The culture is pretty lenient on its standards. Right? The culture standard on marriage is about like what it was in Jesus' day. If she displeases you at all, find another one. If, she, if he displeases you at all, find another one. The culture standard on merit, parenting is pretty loose. The culture standard on a work ethic is pretty bad. The culture standard on truthfulness is pretty lax. The culture standard on morality is almost not existence. Listen, the world loves a loophole. But a Christ follower has been called to do more than the culture does. And if you're using as your standard what you're seeing on TikTok and what you're seeing on Instagram and what you're seeing on social media, if that's what you're uh, viewing, seeing as acceptable, you will never make a difference to a lost and dying world. I'm not talking about You'll never be saved, you're saved. I, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, you're a Christian. I'm saying if you want to make a difference, if we're doing what the world is doing there and we're letting that be our God and not the Word of God be our God, if we're working as hard as they work in the world, if we're, if we're familying as hard as they're familying in the world, listen, you will not make a difference. If you don't do more than they do, you will never make an impact 
for the kingdom of God. I'm going to do something I've never done in a sermon in my life right now. Never, never done this in my life. I'm going to say a kind word about a former University of Tennessee football player. Peyton Manning, a living legend, two-time Super Bowl champion, five-time MVP, 14-time Pro Bowler in the NFL Hall of Famer. He's arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. While Manning, a physique so unimpressive, his teammates called him the fifth most athletic Manning. The other four were his dad, Archie, his brothers, Eli and Cooper, and his mama, Olivia. 1998, Bruce Arians, who was a coach, uh, uh, Indianapolis Colts assistant coach, Manning's nickname was the sheriff, or became to be known the sheriff. He was doing a pre-draft interview with Peyton Manning because they weren't sure who should be picked number one, Peyton Manning or Ryan Leaf. Peyton's commitment to preparation was on full display as he entered the interview room. Peyton walked in with a notebook full of his own questions, ranging from the Colts offense, get this, to the Indiana tax code. Arian said, I don't know anything about the Indiana tax code, kid. Why are you asking me? When Arians was finished with the interview, he said, I remember thinking, who interviewed who in the room? But this was a guy in 2013, one of the most famous Peyton Manning stories ever. Peyton Manning ran a play at the University of Tennessee in 1996. Peyton Manning called up the film guy at Tennessee, and he said, would you pull the film for me on this play? Flip right, dual X, motion fake, roll 98, block pass special. He ran that play 17 years and remembered it by name. When he was 36 years old, he led the Broncos from the 23rd ranked offense to the 4th. And 14 teammates had career best years. And I I said all that to say this. Here's one of his most famous quotes. One thing that can never be sacrificed is your preparation and work ethic. One thing that can never be sacrificed is your preparation and work ethic. Here's what Peyton Manning, watching me in any interview, and here's what he always says. And again, I'm not holding him up as a good Christian model. I'm not holding him up as a good person. I'm talking about football right now. But he said, never let somebody else outwork you he was always going to do more than the rest did and hear me if you want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ a man of your word you've got to have a little bit of a Peyton Manning attitude and do more than the culture does what do you mean preacher what they say is okay may not be okay what they say is right may not be right what they say is wrong may not be wrong. What they say is permissible may not need to be done. What they call love is probably not love. You have to do more than they do if you want to show them the difference between an unbeliever and a believer. So that begs the question, do you rise above your peers? Do they see the difference in you and in your word? Do you work harder than your peers do at the job? You say, what does that have to do with anything? Because when you take a job, you vow as a child of God to represent Jesus in that marketplace. Do you love your family more than others love their family? Do you stand out with your language and actions and manners more than the world do more than the culture does? Number two, Jesus would say this, commit more than the culture commits. 
Jesus uses marriage and divorce as an example that the culture says you can throw away your marriage. Jesus said a disciple is different. Their commitment, commitment means more. That your commitment, Christian, your commitment to whatever you're committing to, but especially your family and especially your marriage, your commitment should mean more than a lost and dying world. Your family ought to be able to uh, depend on your commitment. Your church ought to be able to depend on your commitment. Your friends, your work, in a world filled with people afraid of commitment, our commitment should stand out. The, the term is called, I don't even know how to pronounce it, I didn't look it up. I think the word is called gamophobia. It's the fear of commitment and it's the new disease among millennials, they tell us. That when you look at millennials, 39% of millennials aren't sure whether their current partner is the one for them. I mean, we're getting close to half here. Four out of ten aren't sure that their current, the guy I'm married to, the gal I'm married to, is the one for them, which tells me, they're still looking. 15% of millennials wonder whether they would stumble across someone better than their current, current, current. Can I, can I say this? When you take your vows at the altar, you're supposed to quit looking. Can I get an amen right there? 29% of millennials like the confidence to navigate through a relationship for more extended periods. In other words, if it gets hard, I quit. And by the way, family does get hard. 10% of millennials can't even imagine. Now, we're, we're not saying that they're not going to do it. They said they can't even entertain the thought of being in a relationship with just one person for the rest of their lives. Rest of their lives. Can I tell you there's a reason your marriage vows don't go like this? And I promise to love and to cherish you until I find somebody better. I promise to love and cherish you until you burn dinner and I'm done. I promise to love and cherish you until it gets a little bit hard or you don't please me and then I'm out of here, but I'll love you until then. You know why marriage vows don't say that? Because nobody would get married with those vows. Your commitment ought to mean more than the world's commitment does. In a, wor in a world where people cannot make a commitment, we are called to be different. That we Keep your word as a disciple that represents Jesus. That means your word at your marriage and in your family and at your work and in uh, your world doing what's right. Listen, look, look at the examples in the Bible. Look at Joseph in the Old Testament. That wanted to keep his word to a pagan named Potiphar when his wife came after Joseph and Joseph cho chose to keep his integrity. Look at Daniel. He was going to pray three times to God no matter what. Had given God his word and they said, well, throw you in a lion's den. And Daniel said, then throw me in a lion's den. Look at Job who worshiped God no matter what, and the devil took everything away from Job. And Job said, though you slay me, still I'll trust him. Little known story in the Bible, look in the book of Hosea, who married a woman of ill repute. And after they were married, she kept committing pornea on him over and over again but Hosea kept on loving her why she had given his word to God and to her their commitment cost them something but they kept it anyway and left the rest in the hands of God can I hear you church your commitment may cost you something but keep your commitment anyway 
Number three, respect more than the culture respects. I'm just going to hit this quickly. I want to move on. Jesus said to be careful what you made a vow by. I swear to God is what they were saying. Be careful. He's watching. A disciple of Christ will show a little more respect with their words. A disciple shows more fear and respect of the Lord. Knowing that Jesus is watching and listening to everything we say, and knowing that Matthew 12 says this, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for, say this word in yellow with me, say it, every careless word they speak. A disciple of Jesus shows a little more respect for God, knowing that we'll have to give an account for every careless word. People will notice, hear me, the respect you show to heaven, how you talk, how you obey, your faithfulness. And one day you'll give an account for every word and every attitude and every emotion. Respect more. Than the culture respects. And number four, I'm finished. Keep more than the culture keeps. I love how Jesus closes this out. He says this. Quit feeling the need to swear by this or that. Quit making grandiose claims. Do this instead. Let a solid yes be yes and a solid no be no. If you say you'll do it, then do it. If you say you won't do it, then don't do it. Keep your word more than the culture keeps their word, and they will notice the difference. Close your Bibles, I'm I'm finished. I've I've used this illustration before, but I'm going somewhere with this. It's not the same thing. I'm going somewhere with it. I'm just telling you this story to get there. You know, at his presidential nomination speech in the 1988 Republican National Convention, Vice President George H.W. Bush made a bold promise. And I'm just going to put it up here. George Bush made a bold promise. He said this. Say it with me. Read my lips. No new taxes. Read my lips. How many of you are old enough to remember and watch that speech? Anybody in the room watch that speech? Yeah, it was popular at the time. It's all over the news, unfortunately, for him. You can guess what happened. Bush found himself forced to compromise on his pledge. On June 26, 1990, two years into his presidency, he raised taxes. It cost him his reelection. As a matter of fact, after we invaded Iraq, Bush's approval rating was 89%. Unheard of for a president. No, nobody's been there ever since. But that no new taxes thing cost him. And I started wondering, I started wondering, how many presidential promises are kept? Right? Surely there's somebody in the world that keeps up with it, right? Like how many presidential promises are kept? The best research we could do I got some help on this one, but we found several studies. Best research we could do says this. I won't ask you how many because it's more than you think. 67% of, of, in some form or another, by the way, not exactly, but some form or another. 
on average, 67%. That includes the ones they kept. That includes the ones they tried to keep but maybe was voted down in Congress. That, but the president did what he said he would do. And I want to say this. Pretty good for a president. 67%. I'll be honest. I'm impressed. Pretty good for a president. Not good enough for a disciple of Jesus Christ. Keeping your word two out of three times will not impress a lost and dying world. Do more than the culture does. Commit more than they commit. Respect more than they respect and keep more than they can keep. Would you stand with me? Heads bowed and eyes closed. Pastor Joel, I love that message. You want to be different? Tell the truth. Uh, Do what you say you're going to do. Man, that makes such a difference in today's society, in in our culture today. um, People are not people of their word. And if you want to be different, be a person of your word. I love that in Psalm, I believe it's in chapter 14, uh, verse 5, it says that a righteous man swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. That means no matter what kind of situation you get in, you are a person of integrity and you are a person of your word. And those are powerful truths to live our lives by. Speaking of truth, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the ultimate truth. And if we want a relationship with God, we need to come through Jesus. And maybe you've never given your heart and life to Jesus before. It begins with you understanding that because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, we're all sinners. Every single one of us is born with a sin nature. We can try to fix it, but the truth is nothing can fix our problem with sin except for the blood of Jesus. And we've got to believe that. We've got to believe that Jesus came. He lived for 33 years. He died on the cross. He was buried dead in the tomb, and on the third day He rose again. If we believe that, then we must confess it with our mouth. We confess Jesus, according to Romans uh, 10, verse 9 and 10, as the Lord and Savior of our life. And maybe you've never done that. Listen, you can't be different in your own power. You can only do it through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you that you get at the moment that you put your faith and trust in Jesus. If God's spoken to you and you need to give your heart and life to Christ this morning, tell God this, Lord, I admit to you that I'm a sinner. Lord, I'm sorry for my sin. I ask you to come into my heart, take away my sin, be my Savior. Lord, I give my life to you in Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer for the first time this morning, We want to say welcome to the family. We want to celebrate that with you, and we want to help you take next steps on your faith journey with Jesus. And so if you would, click on the link that we've just dropped in the chat box that says, I commit my life to Christ. Click on that link. Um, uh, I'll get an email when you fill out the little bit of information that we asked for there, and I will connect with you this week. um, to help you take those next steps with Jesus. Hey, it's been awesome to be together. Uh, this morning. Don't forget, pray, pray, pray for Easter, that God would move mightily and that we would see men, women, boys, and girls come to Jesus as a result of what we do on Easter Sunday. It's been awesome to be together. God bless you. Have a great week. I'll see you next week.
We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week as we help equip you to apply God's Word to your daily life. For the latest updates about what's happening around Peavine City, be sure to connect with us on social media. For more information about Peavine, to get in touch with us or check out one of our services, visit us at peavine.org. Thanks for listening.